I think we can go ahead and start. So why don't we begin with a prayer together. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and enkindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Almighty God, who once sent the Spirit of your Son into the hearts of the apostles, send that same Spirit of love into our hearts, that we may properly discern your will, and with courage carry it out. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. So, uh, talking to Father Timothy since our last meeting, and again, if, if you can't hear me, or if you miss something, just, just wave at me. I'll try to enunciate more clearly. I can speak louder than this if need be. Um, before, I, uh, before I became a musician, I was an actor, and so I can project if necessary and uh, enunciate. So in any case, um, talking about just, uh, I wrote this, uh, first of all, I want to reiterate the invitation to come for Vespers tonight, if you'd like. We'll try to do our best to do social distancing. You can wear masks if you feel better doing that. That's fine. Um, hopefully everybody will feel safe. We're just going to have a group, small group of singers in the choir loft. Uh, like we normally do for Solemn Vespers, they will be singing the polyphonic parts. We will be singing the chant. And uh, uh, it should be nice. I, I just figured, you know, it, it is our feast day and we wanted to celebrate it properly. And we want to thank God for preserving our community for 32 years. It's pretty amazing. Um, and uh, so rather than thinking of this as something where we would make a big public announcement and send out flyers and all that, we would just let our friends know we're doing it and you're welcome to come. So uh, I was writing up the little program notes that I usually do for these. And um, I was talking about, uh, I think it's important that we... Christians, Catholics, all Christians find creative ways to celebrate the liturgy together uh, because we know from church tradition as it's given in the, the document Lumen Gentium and then in the Catechism that the Eucharist is the source and summit of our life, our spiritual life. And the Eucharist, of course, is the center of the liturgy. It's, it's the pinnacle of the liturgy. But all the liturgy moves us in the direction of the Eucharist, in the direction of thanksgiving. So it's important for us to get together. And of course, that can mean, Christ says, wherever two or three are gathered in his name, he's there. So it could just be two or three of us. Um, it's great if you can pray the office. If you can't do that, just pray, to, pray the rosary, read scripture together, something, so that we're in touch with the source of our Christian life, who is Christ. Uh, that's very important, and it's especially important when things are so topsy-turvy. Uh, I was talking to a friend of ours who comes and helps us with development things every couple of weeks, and we were saying a few weeks ago, um, what's really strange about this period of time we're living through is that every day feels exactly the same. It's really hard to kind of distinguish between one day and the next, and at the same time, it feels like every day has some completely unexpected crisis that comes out of nowhere. So it's very disorienting. And under these circumstances, it's especially important then to have good spiritual habits, right? Uh, the spiritual habits we can call virtues. And that's what I'm going to talk about today. Uh, because we can never really hear enough about virtue for reasons that I'll explain. Uh, so we need, uh, uh, Saint, uh, Pope Paul VI called it uh, a well-ordered spiritual life. And he says this in a homily for Holy Family, that uh, Jesus shows us by living at home with his mother and foster father, the importance of just, you know, family life always has its routines. You, you can't have a big family and not have dinner time. Maybe with smaller families these days, that's one of the reasons why families can get by without eating together. But if you have nine kids or something like that, and you live on a farm, you can't just say like, everybody help yourself. It won't work. Uh, my, my stepfather's from a farming family. And so I, um, uh, I know a little bit about this because he, uh, I think he's got six 
brothers and sisters. And then uh, I think his mother's, uh, one of his mother's siblings had 12 kids, 11 boys. <laughs> you can imagine how much trouble they got into. Uh, in any case, uh, when you have a big group like that, it's, you, you, can't, you can't live together without having routines. And it's the same thing as a church. We can't work together, be a family together without routines. And so it's important to come up with good routines. The other reason I want to talk about virtue today is that um, the way the news is set up, the way we receive our news, the, if you go to, uh, um, I remember when, when uh, Facebook first came out, and, uh, uh, you know, it was, I have to admit, it was kind of fun hearing from people from high school I hadn't heard from in a long time, catching up on things, seeing pictures of my friend's kids, uh, all that stuff. Um, feels like about 80% of that is gone, and now it's all angry politics all the time. And, uh, in fact, I, I don't really watch the news or read the news that much, but because... Uh, Facebook made a monastery page. They just make pages for every organization, and then you have to claim it if you want to mo if you want to administer it. Otherwise, just it randomly sits there, and people can post stuff. So we decided we would administer it, but then it has to be linked to a personal account. So it's linked to my account. So to get onto <coughs> our Facebook page, uh, I, I have to have a, a personal account. And I closed my old account because I got tired of it. Now I have this new account and all the same people are finding me again. And um, uh, this is where I get my news from because uh, just you know, every day it's like, oh my gosh, check this out, check that out. And uh, I have friends on both sides of the political divide. And so um, it's pretty amazing because they say exactly opposite things <laughs> all the time. And it's, uh, the, the, the reason I bring this up is because there's a temptation to feel like we need to do something, right? There's all these crises, there's all this uh, stuff that makes us anxious. We're worried about these things. What should we do? And I wrote about this a little bit at the beginning of the pandemic, you know. Uh, I, I wrote a blog post in which I, I asked the question, what do you do when there are no good choices? Right? And so part of what I said is, well, you, you, you make your best guess and then you act virtuously. So you're ready to... You're ready for anything when you live a virtuous life. Um, whereas if we don't cultivate virtues, we tend to respond uh, to crises with less than optimal resources. So it's important to practice virtue. The other good thing is, um, uh, you know, these, these problems we're dealing with as a society are simply beyond any of us. You know, we're not going to fix them. Um, we're not going to fix them even by convincing that one person on Facebook who disagrees with us. <laughs> even if we could flip that one person, it won't solve the problem. Uh, so, uh, but on the other hand, if we are living virtuous lives, then whatever problems we run into, again, we will have the resources. This is something we can do right now. We can work on virtue in our lives right now. And then whatever happens, we'll be ready for it or at least more ready. <laughs> so uh, then the other thing is Father Timothy was just telling me, we've been talking about, uh, it's wonderful to have so many oblates joining the program. It's, it's just, it's, it really is an encouragement to me to see all of you here, you know, um, to be together. This is really important. And that means uh, Father Timothy and I need to think about formation because the group is getting pretty big and we want to make sure that everybody knows what, what you're supposed to be doing. <laughs> what it means to be an oblate, you know, what, what, what it is we're getting together for, what your obligations are once you leave here. And uh, so he just mentioned it would be helpful to talk about virtue. In the rule of St. Benedict, uh, he mentions virtue explicitly a few times. Uh, but more often what St. Benedict does is he refers to a classical uh, two-part, uh, two-stage growth in the spiritual life. The life of virtue, which is when we, we work on our passions, where we work on our actions and our habits of, of activity. And then contemplation, where we work on how we think and how we understand the gospel. Um, so in the early church, 
this was the distinction between the active and the contemplative life. So starting in about the 12th century or so, with the growth of canon law and the growth of the mendicant orders, who uh, became more popular than the monastic orders, we came to have a canonical distinction between states of life. So we are usually considered to be a contemplative order, whereas the Jesuits would be an active order, right? So when we talk about the active life, uh, we often in modern times mean something different than what the fathers of the church meant. What they meant by the active life was something that was required of all Christians, and that is to uproot sin and vice from our hearts and to plant the virtues and to grow the virtues. That's the active life, to, to work against sin and to do the right thing, to follow God's commandments, to be obedient. Uh, and to be virtuous is really what we're aiming at. And then the contemplative life is also incumbent upon all Christians, but it follows after the, the active life. The active life, if we don't work on our passions and our actions, they will tend to distort the way we think, right? So one of the difficulties, um, by the way, that's Wednesday, the cat there. Back, uh, uh, Finn, who was with us last month, he's still hanging in there, but just by a thread. I don't know if he'll make it to the end of the day, frankly. Uh, he's, he's an old cat with lots, lots wrong with him, but he's in great spirits. That's the nice thing. Um, so let me... Uh, so one of the things that's a commonplace, I think, for anybody who studied psychology is someone who's afraid or anxious can't think. Right? One of the things we need to be able to do to think clearly is not be feeling pressure to make a decision because I'm afraid something bad will happen if I don't act right away. That's, that's not a good kind of place to be to make a good decision and to think clearly. Um, we also tend not to think clearly when we're angry. And as someone who you've heard me say, I'm a choleric by temperament, uh, I can assure you that the, the special danger of anger is that when you are angry and you're reasoning, you feel like you're right. <laughs> you're sure that your, your logic is completely uh, uh, unstoppable. But, but in fact, when one is angry, we can see it. When somebody's angry, they often make no sense at all, right? Uh, so it's very dangerous. So one of the things that, uh, we can do is to practice the virtue of patience so that we uh, don't become angry, we don't lose our temper. We can practice um, uh, virtues of temperance, for example. That'll help us not to become anxious about things. Uh, we're often anxious because we're worried about what will happen if we don't have something to eat tomorrow or if we have to suffer some kind of pain or deprivation. If we train ourselves to accept our bodily limitations by uh, limiting what we eat, eating healthy, exercising, um, fasting from time to time, uh, doing things that are, so, so for instance, this, our cat Finn, um, who's dying, taking care of him is somewhat unpleasant sometimes. He doesn't smell very good. Um, he, you know, he, he wants uh, I was taking a nap the other day and he, he wanted to sit on my chest, you know, and he's, he's, it's not a very pleasant thing. He's all bony and everything. <laughs> and I say, that's, that's a good boy, Finn, you know, uh, you've been a good cat. Uh, but, you know, taking care of the sick is difficult. Uh, we don't like to see people suffering. Uh, when people are sick, they oftentimes, uh, are not in a good mood. They might not smell so good. They might, uh, be demanding. So to serve the sick, to train ourselves, to do good works, works of charity, works of mercy, uh, to bury the dead, uh, those works of mercy, corporal works of mercy, train us to be okay with certain types of bodily deprivations or, or inconveniences. So that when, say, we're really pressed and there's something that makes us afraid because, uh, you know, there are rioters coming at our house or something. Who knows what will happen these days? Uh, we won't panic. We'll have some re resources to say, okay, I need to make a decision, but I need to make a decision not out of fear, but out of principle, right? So virtues allow us to think clearly. Uh, before I talk about the specific virtues, what they are and how we acquire them, I had Father Timothy pass out a little uh, two aphorisms they're of my own coinage. 
I, I hope you like them. Uh, let me explain them for a moment. So, so one of the things I found in teaching virtue and contemplation uh, is that we can know what they are, but we keep running into these obstacles in practicing them and acquiring them. And that's because we have certain cultural tendencies or preferences that, that we've, we think are virtuous that uh, are actually um, anti-virtues, let's say. So when I say that the cult of authenticity is the enemy of virtue, I use that word cult very specifically. I don't mean that authenticity in its best sense is bad. We should act as, as integrated persons. We should aim for integrity. Uh, we should know ourselves well enough that we know what we can do and what we we're not capable of doing and, uh, and simply accept that and then do the best we can with who we are. So that's the real sense of authenticity. The cult of authenticity is something different. It means every single decision uh, I make based on how I feel about it and what seems right to me. And the reason this goes against virtue is that to acquire virtue, we have to act in ways that don't feel authentic at first. So for instance, if I want to become courageous, if I sit around and wait till I feel courageous and act authentically courageous, I'll never do anything courageous. <laughs> I might do something rash. Uh, but for instance, if you go into the military, the way they train you to be courageous is just by pushing you past your, your comfort zone over and over and over again, right? And uh, having very clear penalties for disobedience, like getting kicked out and sent home. So if you want to become, uh, I'm, I'm very interested in uh, the Navy SEALs and how they train their guys. They have the advantage of it's a very prestigious honor to be a Navy SEAL. Not, not everybody can do it. And in fact, I think uh, like 10% of people who enter basic training will make it as Navy SEALs. Uh, and that's because they just, they push you until you fall apart, like for two weeks in a row, without stop. You get almost no sleep. They, they, they put you in the ocean, they pull you out of the ocean, they make you carry a boat on your head. And, uh, uh, and, and some people are physically incapable of it. But the bigger problem is most people are mentally incapable of it because as soon as the body starts to hurt, I pull back, I, I conserve my energy instead of just keep going, right? Um, so, and that's sort of, I think like, I can't do it, right? That's me authentically, I say, I can't do it. Um, and the Navy SEALs need guys who say, I've never done this before. This is going to be really hard, but I'm going to do it. <laughs> right? So you keep going. And uh, what, what we find oftentimes in circumstances like this is we're capable of a lot more than we thought. Um, and if we had relied on our own estimation of ourselves, we would have given up a long time ago. But that means that I have to do things that I don't feel capable of only because they're asked of me. So when God tells us, for example, when he teaches us, um, you know, not to use, uh, say, uh, not to get angry. You've heard it said, thou shall not kill. But I say, you know, whoever's angry with his brother is liable to the Sanhedrin. Okay. So I think, yeah, but I'm just, I'm just an angry person. I can't help it. Um, we'll never actually acquire the patience we need then if we say that. So what we have to do is, um, I think of Job. So when Job uh, loses all of his, his family, um, it says, uh, you know, in all this Job, Job didn't say anything against God. And then he gets his uh, sores and sits on the dung heap and scrapes himself with a pot shirt and his wife says, why don't you just get it over with? Curse God and die. And he says, oh, that would be a silly thing to do. You know, I would never do something like this. And then the narrator tells us, Job, in all of this, didn't sin with his lips. <laughs> right? And so you can imagine Job inside. Why me? What in the world is going on? Right? But he forces himself not to say anything. Right? At the very least, he, he does something that might feel inauthentic. He wants nothing more than to yell at God and say, this isn't fair. But he, he keeps his mouth shut, and eventually, what you'll find, and again, this is, this is my area of expertise, if you don't give vent to anger, and you just sit still and let it go away, it goes away. 
And then the next time it's easier. Uh, the problem with habits is that when you indulge in a habit, it gets harder to stop, right? Um, so I, many of you know you've heard, what's that? No, that's okay, thanks. Um, I, I've said this many times, but I, I have uh, some experience working with recovering alcoholics. And, uh, you know, it's, it's all about the mind. Uh, the, obviously, the body is a big part of it because uh, drinking alcohol makes us feel good to a certain extent. Um, but what drives the addiction is once you give in because of negative thinking, you say, oh, I'll just have this drink to calm myself down. It gets harder to say no the next time. And then what you hear when you hear recovering alcoholics talk about their current struggle, you'll hear stories like, you know, I was driving home from the airport after a business trip and I saw the liquor store and I wanted to stop, but I didn't. I kept going, right? I forced myself to do something that was against how I felt acting at that moment. Okay, so to acquire virtue, we have to force ourselves to do the right thing, to obey God's law, even when we don't feel like it. And then it gets easier, and eventually we, we get good habits. You know, it, it's, you, you know the logic. If, if uh, children ate what they authentically craved, they'd never get past chocolate cake, right? right? So this is why parents say, you can't have the cake until you eat your broccoli. So when I was a kid, I just could not stand vegetables, green vegetables. But now I'd rather have those than cake because I just forced myself to eat them. And, uh, well... My parents had something to do with forcing me to eat them too, but um, uh, our, our tastes change. You know, so you can actually learn to like things, learn to like behaviors that you don't right now by just doing them over and over again, especially if they are consonant with human nature. Right? So the virtues are, they are what make us more authentically, truly ourselves, because now we're free to do the things that we should do. And so we can, we're not ashamed of our behavior. We're not stuck in bad habits, right? Um, then with contemplation, uh, we won't spend as much time on contemplation today because uh, the virtue is, is the real work of this life in a lot of ways. So the enemy of contemplation is what I call the, the, the cult of technology. And so you can see that the cult of authenticity, I think in common parlance, we call that existentialism. Right, it's a very common way of thinking about life today. And obviously, we live in a world that's, that's infatuated with technology. And the problem with that, so technology itself, again, isn't bad. It's this kind of feeling like if something's inconvenient, let's figure out some kind of technological solution so we can save time. Right? Let's build a machine to do it for us. And, uh, and this gets us in the habit of thinking any inconvenience, number one, is something we can fix by some kind of technological solution rather than just accepting it. But the second problem is more problematic. So we start to see objects as things that we should manipulate for our own convenience rather than as creatures of God that are communicating his presence. So we, we start to manipulate reality to fit our preferences rather than accepting reality as reflecting God's message to us. So, um, so contemplation begins for the fathers of the church with what they called natural contemplation. They had a Greek word for it, phusike. Uh, phusis just means nature. So physics is the study of nature. And then they had theoretike, which was contemplation proper, which is contemplating God. So there are two steps to contemplation. The first one is learning how to see the logos, the reason for every existing thing. So when God creates, he creates everything through the logos, as John tells us. And this means he speaks and they, they come to be, right? He says, let there be trees and grass and, and mud so we can make bricks. And uh, he speaks these things into being. So each of them has some trace of God's intention. He doesn't make anything for no reason. Everything that exists has a reason for it. And this word logos can mean both word and reason. So to see the reason for things is to see Christ in them. It's to see the word of God in them. So the fathers, say, would look at a tree and say the reason that God created the tree is because eventually the cross would be fashioned out of a tree. And this would save us, right? So we can look upon trees with a certain gratitude. 
uh, for God's uh, forethought for our salvation, for Christ's forethought for, for offering himself as a sacrifice for us. When we see stones, these aren't really stones, they're, they're fake stones. I don't know if we have any real stones around here. Yeah, there's limestone at the base of the church. We see stone, uh, the fathers would say this is, these, these are for altars where we offer sacrifices. These seem a little far-fetched to us, but I think we can, uh, we can enter into this in, in our own way quite legitimately just by taking the time to notice things, uh, to see uh, this is something I've been urging through blog posts, you know, just to look, just spend time looking at something like this incredible vine, you know, that uh, there's all this activity going on in those leaves. Uh, they're searching out the sun and taking the sunlight and changing it and taking water from the ground and changing it into their own substance. It's an amazing thing. And then uh, in about a month, this living thing here is going to know it's time to go to sleep and all the, the leaves are going to turn brown and fall off. And they're going to say, now you have to rake us all up. <laughs> uh, all these bees that are flying around, you know, um, they're, they're a little inconvenient. We don't want to get stung by them, obviously, but bees are incredible. You know, the fact that they can, uh, they make these hives and make wax and honey, that they work together. Um, God has uh, given them this nature that's, that's really remarkable. And just to sit with that for a while, rather than thinking, how can we get these bees to do something useful for us? This vine here, this is, uh, this is ruining our brick. Let's take it all down, burn it. That would be useful. And then the brick will last longer and we won't have to tuck point. <laughs> right? That would be thinking more of a technological term. That would be inconvenient. It's inconvenient to have these vines. They're ruining our house. They, they grow inside the windows. Look at this. <laughs> uh, so let's get rid of them. Uh, when, uh, I grew up in Wisconsin, but my dad's from Chicago, and he used to, to joke around and say... Uh, we had a big lawn, you know, in Green Bay, much bigger than what you normally get in Chicago. And he got tired of having to mow the lawn all the time. And he said, let's just do what we did back in Chicago, pave the thing and paint it green. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a kind of technological mindset, right? Rather than saying like, isn't it wonderful we have all this grass? Yeah, we have to mow it. We have to take care of it. We have to be stewards. It's maybe not convenient. It was great for me. That's how I made all my money as a high schooler, mowing lawns. But uh, the technological mindset looks to make things more convenient so we can do what we want. And uh, the, again, the problem is that by giving in to our own desires, we limit ourselves to who we are now rather than growing because of God's invitation to see what he's doing, right? And it might feel inconvenient to have to wait for God to speak to us, but uh, we'll, we'll discover things about ourselves and about the world that we didn't know before and it'll bring us closer to God. And the closer we are to God, the more we can relax because he's got it under control. Uh, you know, whatever crisis is going on in the world, God is all powerful and he, he, he can take care of it. He can take care of us. It's okay. So we don't have to fix everything. What we should do though is work on virtue so that we can see what God is doing. Okay, so let's... Um, and then the last thing, I, I kind of elided over this. So I want to explain to you where to find this in the rule of St. Benedict. Several times he talks about, for instance, um, persons who are going to have offices in the monastery, the abbot, the prior, the cellarer, the guest master. He'll say something like they should be chosen for uh, the goodness of their life or behavior and the soundness of their doctrine. And this is another way of saying goodness of behavior is their virtue. So officers of the monastery should be visibly virtuous persons. And then also the soundness of their doctrine, they understand. So they're contemplatives, right? So you'll see this, once you learn to look for this in the rule, you'll see it in about seven or eight places. Normally, when he's talking about office holders, that it's important that, uh, that they be virtuous and knowledgeable and wise, let's say, wise. Because I think contemplation doesn't just give us knowledge, it gives us wisdom, which is slightly different. Okay, let me stop there. Before I talk about the, the four cardinal virtues, I just want to ask if, if you have any questions about anything I've said so far. Great. So, part two.
you can see I, I talk about virtue a lot. I don't need notes. <laughs> I, hope, I hope that's proving to be the case that I don't need notes and you're not totally lost. Um, so there are many virtues. A virtue is simply a habit. Let's use that word because it's easiest to understand. It's a habit of behavior. It's the habit of doing the right thing at the right time with the right intensity. Okay, so um, maybe the best illustration of this would be to, if, you, if you're a sports fan, one of the things that's remarkable is how the greatest players make great plays routinely. They, they, they don't plan them. I was just thinking for some reason, I, I didn't see this play live because I was a novice in the monastery and I, I, you know, I don't watch baseball anymore, but uh, there was this play that Derek Jeter, the shortstop for the Yankees for a long time made, I think it was in the World Series, that became a kind of classic play. I think what happened was um, the, the other team was, uh, had a guy running to home plate and the throw came in from the outfield and the throw was way off, it missed the plate. But somehow Derek Jeter was running around and he catches the ball and flips it to the catcher who tags the guy out. And he wasn't supposed to be there. Like how did he know to be there? Because he's a great baseball player. He knows what to do, when to do it, and with what intensity. He sees what's going on and he doesn't have to think like, oh gosh, what am I supposed to do? He just responds, right? He just, he knows how to act. Similarly, um, you know, great, uh, leaders in, in battle just know what to do. I would say, like, it amazes me to watch mothers with little kids. Like, they know what to do, right, after a certain amount of time. Like, oh, don't worry, she's just going to yell, like the little baby in the crib, she's just going to yell, she'll stop in about five minutes. Like, five minutes later, she stops. Like, how did you know that? <laughs> well, because I've been a mother for a long time, you know? I, I just know what, what's, what the kid needs or what they don't need when they pretend they need something and they, they actually just want attention, right? A distinction that I can't make. I lack that virtue. Um, so virtues are simply habits of, of perception and action that help us to know the right thing to do in the right circumstances. Uh, and there are many of them. Again, uh, to talk about the virtue of being a good baseball player, it's hard to exactly qualify that with a technical term. But what we find in uh, people who write about virtues is that there are four virtues that are called cardinal because the rest uh, hang from them like hinges. Okay? So a, car a cardinal is based on the Latin word for hinge. And so all the other virtues somehow connect to these four virtues. And they are temperance, temperance, uh, justice, prudence, and <laughs> my mind is... Fortitude, thank you. So, yeah, fortitude is the second one. So, um, we'll talk about these four before we stop today. So, first let's talk about temperance. Temperance is that virtue that allows us to uh, regulate bodily pleasure and pain. Okay, to know how much is the right amount of pleasure in any situation. We usually think of uh, temperance as being something that uh, we have to we have to reduce the amount of pleasure that we we get right because uh, especially these days where where most of us by the standards of the ancient world most of us are fabulously wealthy so we can afford to you know have chocolate cake every night if we want um, we you know we have all these nice pastries and cookies uh, this is the stuff that Costco simply can't give away we have so many cookies in the world that uh, well, let the monastery have them and the oblates can eat them. Uh, so we have an abundance of things that are, are fun to eat, fun to watch. Um, and we, we, you know, let's be honest too, we live in a, a society that privileges pleasure um, on uh, television shows, uh, enter entertainment in general. And uh, the problem with pleasure, of course, is that, as I said, uh, we, we can't guarantee that our life will always be pleasant. <laughs> and so, uh, it, it behooves us to uh, not expect of life that uh, we'll be able to get pleasure at every moment. Uh, not only that, it just it, it makes it difficult for us to do the higher virtues because they will require of us a certain amount of self-denial, right? So again, if, if we're going to take care of someone who's sick, we might have to accept a situation that's not very pleasurable and do so happily because we don't want to go, you know, it's when you're sick, you don't want somebody to come in and say like, 
Oh, it's such a pain dealing with you. <laughs> but I have to, so I guess here I am. We want people who are, are uh, in good spirits, right? We want to encourage the sick. We, want, we don't want them to feel like we're put, they're putting upon us, right? So, but that requires a kind of self-denial, and temperance plays into that. So to, to learn how to go without things that are pleasant... Uh, this is why fasting is a universal spiritual discipline. Just about every culture, people fast uh, because they recognize that just eating all the time and always satisfying our desires doesn't allow us to desire things beyond food, right? So we, we kind of get stuck at desiring at a very low level. Whereas when we curtail these desires, our desire starts to mount towards higher goals rather than just being full, right? Uh, so... This then allows us, so un, under temperance, you know, would include um, eating healthy, eating the right amount, maybe eating less than we need from time to time or regularly, sleeping the right amount, uh, using sexual pleasure in the right way, which is to say, you know, generally within marriage for the purpose of procreation and union between the spouses. Um, so regulating these, these pleasure drives that we have. Uh, another thing about virtue that's important to know is that uh, it's normally understood that we can err, we can make a mistake, either in excess or in defect. So again, in temperance, we usually think of ourselves as, as sinning by excess, right? Uh, I shouldn't have had that second martini, right? Ah, I, I, I don't feel so good today. So that's another thing. If we just go by pleasure, we often uh, sabotage ourselves. Yeah, you know, I ate too much last night, whatever it is. I shouldn't have binge-watched every episode of The Sopranos this weekend. I'm really going to pay for it on, at work on Monday. Uh, so it's easier to see how we can sin by excess, but we can also sin by defect. And so, for instance, Puritanism as, as a kind of category for this, uh, being a spoil sport, like going to a birthday party and, being, and not joining in the fun, uh, would be not virtuous, frankly. You know, uh, so learning how to celebrate at the right time is important. Um, say uh, the prohibition was an unrealistic attempt to get everybody to be virtuous by forcing them not to drink alcohol. And what it did, what it did in fact, was spawn a whole bunch of vice of illegal commerce, <laughs> right? Um, it would have been better to talk about temperance as, you know, only drink when, when there's a good reason to, like if you're celebrating something. Uh, and when you do, do it moderately, you know. Uh, Thomas Aquinas even talks about this. The right amount of alcohol is when you just start to feel a slight elation and then you should stop drinking. <laughs> uh, that, but that's tough, right? Because we know at that point, that's, that's when it's especially fun to drink another one because it feels good and you think, oh, this will, it's going to wear off. So, no, stop there. Same thing with eating. Um, one of the things that stopped me from eating a lot of sweets is I realized that... Uh, uh, as my metabolism has slowed down, as I've gotten older, um, carbohydrates, instead of just getting burned off, they make me hungrier, right? So if I eat a donut, I crave another donut. And saying no to the second donut is really important, but hard, right? But it's possible, again, to sin by defect. Again, that's what I'm getting at here. And so to, um, to say, again, go to a party and getting angry because somebody has a drink, is not actually virtuous um, or to um, uh, <laughs> the year at, uh, for, for Easter when during the Easter octave one of the brothers was afraid to, we, we had been fasting really hard for all of Lent eating beans every day and when we got to Easter there was this big tussle like we should we should actually have a hamburger or something it's not we're not fasting anymore but the, the brother who was in the kitchen wanted to serve beans because he was afraid we would eat too much hamburger. <laughs> and that's actually a defect in terms of the virtue because it, pleasure is given to us for, by God for a reason. And there are times when to celebrate, we need to kind of let our hair down and, and actually play, right? That's okay, within reason, not too much, right? So uh, once we start... Uh, now, all the virtues have to be practiced at the same time. So that we don't just start with temperance. But temperance is usually listed first because uh, it's, it's the least intellectual of the virtues, let's say. Whereas prudence is the one that governs all the rest of them. Okay? 
Uh, but temperance is the first struggle we have, and this is why it's important to impart to children good habits of uh, eating, exercising, bathing, uh, chastity, all those things, right, that we teach kids. Um, then we move on next to fortitude, the one I, I somehow forgot after I was talking about the Navy SEALs. <laughs> so, sometimes we call fortitude courage. They're, they're kind of interchangeable. Um, most specifically, this is being able to do the right thing when there's danger. So when I'm threatened in some way, uh, I'm not deterred. I don't run away and I don't blindly lash out. So the, the sin of excess in courage is rashness. Um, I just blindly run to the, into the line of battle without uh, following the orders of my uh, commanding officer. We normally think of the, ex the defective uh, problem with this virtue, which is cowardice, right? It's when we, we run away from trouble. Uh, but sometimes um, what courage allows us to do is to estimate whether this is a time to run away. Okay, so just because there's danger doesn't mean we have to run in. That would, might be rashness. So again, the virtue is knowing the right measure uh, how much I have to stick in it into this uh, situation before I have to bail, right? And there's always tomorrow. Maybe this isn't a battle I should fight right now. That's not necessarily lacking courage, unless you're just making an excuse because you don't feel like standing up for what's right. More generally, again, this is a virtue that allows us uh, to do the hard things, you know? Uh, for instance, if, uh, if there's somebody, if, if I'm a a CEO, and there's a vice president I have to fire for some reason, and I call him or her into my office, uh, the courageous person will know what to say. So it won't be an attack. You did this, this, and that. Now get out of here. Nor will it be too sort of afraid. Ah, oh, we've really appreciated your many years of work, and, um, well, we're just, we think we're going in a different direction and <laughs> avoiding the issue. So if the person did something that requires... Um, dismissal from the job, we have to find the courage to say that in a calm and direct way, charitably, firmly, right? Uh, so anytime we have to give bad news to somebody, we need courage to do it correctly. So we don't sin by excess, by being too aggressive, um, nor by defect, by trying to get around the hard part, right? Um, Nice thing about courage, I find, well, this is true for all of the virtues. We can kind of uh, game them out as they say it these days. We can, we can anticipate. So that meaning that we have to have this can be difficult. We can think about, well, what is it that I need to say? And when the person objects or gets upset, what am I going to do? And I can prepare myself and say, and again, the, the question is, uh, what's the right thing to do? Not... What, what do I want to do? So I might want to lash out at the person or, or just lose my temper and let them have it. Um, but is that the right thing to do? Would that actually solve anything? Would that actually help the person? Would that make the meeting go more smoothly? Or would it just uh, burn bridges? Uh, would it just uh, make me ashamed of myself afterward for losing my temper, being intemperate? So courage uh, affects these other areas of life where we have to do something that is uh, unpleasant in some way and we simply choose to, to do it in the way it should be done. Uh, when we move up from there, we get to justice. Now justice and prudence are, uh, in my experience, very complex virtues and they take a lot of work to know how to exercise them. They, and when I say work, I mean regularly choosing to approximate as best I can the just and prudent thing to do. Um, so justice, technically, the, the way it's, dis, the, is, it's defined normally is by uh, giving to persons what they are owed and receiving from others what they owe me, right? Um, this, interestingly enough, is this classic definition is where Plato starts his book, The Republic, uh, only to say that justice is much more complicated than that. But this is where we start. And I would say in the modern world and as Catholics, we would 
uh, want to adjust the classical ideal considerably by saying that we are all dependent on each other in various ways. So, so other people do things for us and we owe them as a result, right? So we owe th a thank you to people who give us something or do something for us. Or in the case of a commercial transaction, we owe them the correct amount of compensation for what they're selling us. We normally talk about this as money, right? So when someone sells us uh, a coffee mug, we give them, I don't know, this coffee mug's probably only worth about two bucks now, but we give them what, what it's worth, right? That's just. Uh, we also, in this, we have to acknowledge that sometimes we fail, and so we have to apologize. We recognize that other people fail because I fail, and just as we heard in the gospel today, so we have to forgive. These are all just things to do. By the way, forgiveness in this context, I, I would think it good to separate this out from reconciliation. So forgiveness is something we have to do. It's what Christ requires of us. When we are harmed by someone, uh, we have to forgive. But that doesn't necessarily mean reconciliation. Because to reconcile requires both parties to uh, make a decision to overcome the breach. But sometimes when someone hurts us, they're not ready to reconcile with us. And it might be premature. That requires prudence to know if it's premature to try to reconcile. We might have to wait, right? And uh, again, I found this working with recovered alcoholics. One of the things that AA makes you do is go to everybody you've hurt and apologize for the hurt, for the harm you've done. And uh, so uh, this is step six or seven. I forget. And what, what uh, the person often finds is that the person who's been harmed might not be ready to reconcile. That doesn't mean you get a relationship back just because you say you're sorry. The other person has to wait until they're ready and that they trust you. And then you have to build up that trust slowly. And that's what reconciliation is. But forgiveness is something that anybody can do any time. And it frees us from feeling like we need to take vengeance on the other person. And in the Christian economy, it's a virtue to forgive, right? Uh, not to hold it against other people. Uh, but it's not necessarily a virtue to try to push reconciliation when the other party's not ready. So back to uh, justice. Um, again, what the difficulty for us in our current situation is um, in traditional societies, there are traditional relationships that tell us who we are and what we owe to people. We have vestiges of this in our culture. So um, our parents give us things that we can never repay. So we always owe them honor, right? So uh, the, the commandment tells us this, to honor your father and mother. Uh, by the way, it, do, it doesn't tell us to love them. It tells us to honor them. I think that's kind of interesting. Not that we shouldn't love our parents, but but we must honor them. We must find ways to show them the respect that a parent is due simply by virtue of having that relationship to me of being my parent, right? So, and again, this, this sometimes can be difficult because all of our parents are flawed, right? And so sometimes you have a parent who uh, you don't feel like honoring, but you have to find a way to do it because it's just. It will make you just. It'll train you to know how to do the right thing at the right time, okay? So in traditional societies, you have these extended interweaving relationships and you know sort of what you owe your cousin or your cousin's spouse or whatever. In modern liberal societies, and I use that you know, small L, uh, sort of what the founding fathers intended, we, we tend to drift toward individualism, and then we use law as a, as a way of kind of dealing with each other, uh, rather than being, ju justice just becomes following laws, okay? Uh, but the laws don't necessarily tell us what we owe people. They only tell us what we would do that would hurt somebody else and what could get us in trouble, <laughs> right? But oftentimes we owe things to people that the law doesn't tell us anything about. Um, so again, if, if someone makes a gift to us, and this happens in the monastery all the time, people give us gifts, um, it's my job on behalf of the community 
to say thank you, <laughs> right? And so this is how many of you get letters from me regularly, right? And cards and things like that. That's, a, that's important for both of us uh, so that we maintain a relationship of justice. And it's not a one-way street where there's somebody who's making a gift and there's no acknowledgement. Um, and I, sometimes I have to remind brothers that, that we're actually beggars, you know. Uh, we don't, in the monastery, we don't earn a living. <laughs> um, people freely give us money uh, to help us out. Uh, and this means we have a certain relationship with each of our benefactors. And the other piece of this is that uh, persons who, who give larger gifts, I spend more time talking to, right? I, I owe them more. The community owes them more. Um, this is just just, right? Um, we owe a certain respect to the government, even if we don't like them. So again, you can, you can dislike the president, whether the current one or the previous one, all you want, but there is a certain honor that's due to that person because of his position in the society. Because to dishonor uh, the president is to dishonor the citizenry in general, is to show a dishonor to, uh, to the people, not just to the people who voted for him, it's to the whole group, because we all made the decision together by voting, okay? Um, similarly with, uh, and again, this, this, uh, we have to understand that this, uh, this is complicated. It doesn't mean just doing everything the president says or doing everything the mayor says or doing everything the governor says or the alderman or whoever it is. Um, it's, it's complicated because in our, in our system, the voters are supposed to be sovereign, right? So this makes it complex. Um, but I would just point out that somehow we have to recognize that we are indebted to each other. If we're going to live as citizens of Chicago, Illinois, United States, uh, we have to be careful about some, you know, some of the rhetoric that I hear that's extremely vitriolic and even violent. Uh, you know, you, you hear people talking about violence against people, including elected officials. We've actually seen it happen. Uh, this is unjust. It's, po it's quite possible and necessary to have policy disagreements and even to argue vigorously, um, even to denounce corruption and, and call it what it is. Um, but this has to be done in a way that, that honors the fact that we have to live together, right? And this is right now, you know, trust me, I don't have any obvious answers for the things you have to deal with when you have you know, if you're going to have a Thanksgiving party this year and you've got people on both sides of the divide, I can't tell you what to talk about. <laughs> you have to figure that out. But you can, you can do better at it. You'll be better prepared if you act justly every day and you find ways to act justly. What do I owe other people and how do I discharge that debt, right? Um, and it starts with our families. And then it, starts with, it also starts with God. Going to Mass on Sunday, you know, the virtue of religion, as St. Thomas Aquinas will tell us, is part of the virtue of justice because we owe God everything, <laughs> right? So, so it's important for us to re remind ourselves, to train ourselves to say thank you to God, to trust Him, uh, to thank Him even, you know, for things we, we don't feel like are, were very good gifts. Like sometimes we don't think very highly of ourselves. Maybe God could have done a better job making me. But this is unjust, right? Because uh, God knows more than I know. And so to thank him for who I actually am, for the people he's actually given me in my life, my family, my friends, uh, my church. Uh, what an amazing thing. I mean, just for all of us here that God has given us our faith, right? Not everybody in the world knows Jesus Christ. We do. So we should be really grateful for this. And this can condition us again then not to fly off the handle when we see injustices or feel like we need to do more than is necessary, right? Uh, so to start with those things, to uh, make that time to pray the office out of a sense of obligation to God because God uh, has done all these things for us, right? And the, the liturgy helps train us in this too. The, the Psalms, the, the intercessions, they train us to put God first and to recognize his, uh, his sovereignty over us, let's say. Okay, so then finally we get to prudence. Prudence is, governs all the other virtues. 
And I'm not going to get to the theological virtues today. Maybe I'll do that next month. You know, assuming the, the United States isn't consumed in wildfires by then and we're all gone. Um, so the theological virtues, faith, hope, and love, uh, they are very specific uh, actions of grace. They give us supernatural habits, right? So faith is, is implanted in us by the Holy Spirit so that we actually know and can see what God is doing by our, our attendance at the liturgy, so oftentimes we hear that, uh, you know, um, we, we, we walk by faith and not by sight. This is because when we see the Holy Eucharist on the altar, when we receive the Holy Eucharist, someone who lacks faith will simply see it as bread and wine, but we see it as the body and blood of Christ. So that's a supernatural insight that we have. We couldn't have it without God telling us this and implanting in our hearts this faith. Similarly, with hope, we hope that God will come and, and judge, sort out all the, put things back right, create a new heavens and a new earth, and we will live forever with the saints. This is our hope. We wouldn't know this if God hadn't revealed it to us. So it's an action of grace. It's a gift from God. Similarly, charity, which is different than human love, is the ability to love our enemies. It's to love God in the proper way. Uh, it is to uh, have this supernatural motive to forgive those who hurt us, right? So these are the, the theological virtues, but they build upon the natural virtues because grace builds on nature. It doesn't exclude it. And so if we want to have stronger faith, if we want to have stronger hope and stronger love, it's good to exercise those virtues as virtues. You know the old prayer books, they would have an act of faith, an act of hope, an act of charity. By praying those with intention, we can strengthen our faith, hope, and charity. But we can also strengthen them, and we need to strengthen them by our practice of the natural virtues, or the, the cardinal virtues, uh, that are part of our human nature before grace. So prudence is the, the, the bridge between these. Uh, it's the most intellectual virtue. Technically, again, it is knowing how much deliberation to give to a decision and when to stop deliberating, okay? So the, the, the basic idea is when we have a decision to make, uh, we have to weigh potential outcomes. If it's a particularly difficult decision, for example, if it is, uh, should I marry this person? Should I enter this monastic community? Should the, our family move? Should I change jobs? Should I run for pu public office? Like these very momentous decisions that will change our life forever, we shouldn't make too quickly, right? We should deliberate about them. Um, and I'll just say, you know, it's funny how these things happen because uh, a very good friend of mine uh, uh, proposed to his wife after they had spent 45 minutes together in the, in the back seat of a car on the way to some uh, function at their school where they were studying in Paris. And uh, they were married 60-some years before she died a few years ago. <laughs> so they both, del del I don't think she said yes right away. <laughs> uh, but uh, this, so presumably he had prepared himself to know what sort of person and had recognized her when he saw her. Okay, it didn't, it wasn't just falling head over heels with somebody. It was in fact... Uh, what, what convinced him was uh, she said that she knew how to mend his sweater. <laughs> and so, um, so just because it's a momentous decision doesn't mean we, we don't know pretty quickly what the right decision is. So it's just a question of making sure we've weighed the, um, all, all of the, the things we need to, but we don't put it off. We don't um, procrastinate. When it's time to make the decision, we've looked at all of the angles, we make the decision and we do it, right? We don't, we don't wait. Once we've got everything in order, uh, that's the, we can sin by defect, by not deliberating enough. But we can also sin by excess and never make the decision, never pull the trigger, right? So prudence governs all, governs all the other virtues because as I said, all of them have some of this sense to them. Uh, when, you know, how often should we celebrate something? Is, uh, 
Is a 25th birthday enough to do a, a really special thing for somebody or for a friend? Am I the right friend for this, to do this, to run this? Should I call his uh, spouse? Should I call his parents? Should I call his sister? How do I do this, right? Um, how do I decide what to do? Well, I need to deliberate about it. I need to look at all the information I have. What kind of friendship do we have? Uh, how well do I know his family? Are they likely to do something and invite me? And uh, should I let them organize it? Um, you know, the, uh, and then if I deliberate too long, the birthday might come and go and there's no party. <laughs> and then I realize, oh, I should have done that. You know, it would have been nice for him to have that party. So prudence, and that's, I, I mentioned this because I said earlier that temperance has something to do with celebrating. Um, <laughs> there are times when it's important for us to have fun together and to do things that are a little outside the normal. Um, to enjoy ourselves a little more than we do on a daily basis. If we have a party every day, obviously, it loses its specialness, you know. Um, but then to know when and how to plan this, what's the right amount of, um, you know, would, would my friend enjoy a certain kind of activity or would it be a real bummer if we took him to go play paintball and he hates it, <laughs> right? Uh, what is he like? Like, this is about him. You see how we weigh all these things. We do it all the time. We just don't think of it in terms of virtue, I, I suspect, that we think, okay, I need to deliberate until I'm sure of the right action and then I need to execute. Um, Aristotle would say that the, the outcome of practical reasoning is an action. Okay, it's not a decision to do something. It's actually doing it. So this is one of the things about prudence too. You use your brain to figure out what issues are involved, but then you have to use your will to actually do it <laughs> and get it done with. Um, and how do we grow in, in prudence? This is important. I think one of the, this is the last thing I'll say and I'll take some questions and then I need, I need you to tell me when we need to stop. So, because uh, I don't have a watch, but I think we're at, it's about 1230 now. Um, so we can read about virtue but the way traditional societies teach virtue is by telling stories about virtuous people, okay? So if you want to know something about, or, or and vicious people, right? So you can understand like the danger of being an Achilles or an Agamemnon, of giving way to anger and, and pouting, or giving way to um, pride, right? Um, if, if you know the story of the Iliad, uh, Achilles and Agamemnon get in an argument at the beginning and it, it causes much suffering for everybody throughout the epic. But we continue to read the Iliad because many people find thinking about what would I do if I were Achilles and I watch how he acts and then I watch how virtuous people act. So I encourage the brothers to read the lives of the saints. How does a saint act? How would Philip Neri respond to this? How would St. Benedict respond? Uh, how would St. Francis of Assisi respond? Uh, I often find myself going back to uh, Philip Neri and Ignatius of Loyola because uh, uh, Philip Neary has such a great sense of humor about the way he guide, he directed other people. Um, uh, he he would just to give you an example. Um, there was a, one of his early followers in the oratory uh, was a, a young man who was very proud of his clothing. He was a bit foppish, you know, so he'd wear these very nice outfits. And every Sunday they would go around to the different basilicas in Rome and pray there. And uh, because St. Philip Neri was worried that this young man was going to become vain, uh, they had a dog that they brought along and they made him carry the dog. So when he was done at the end of the day, he had all this dog fur all over his nice clothing. But it was funny, you know, it's, it, it makes the point without being too personal, right? It makes the point in a gentle way. And uh, it's not something that you could learn in a textbook. Like the prudent thing to do would make the guy carry the dog because you just don't know what the situation is going to be. But Philip Neary, in the midst of that, just came up with this idea, and it was perfect. Um, I have to tell the other one, don't I? <laughs> so one of the guys in the oratory got ordained, and for his first homily, he got up and he gave this homily, and it was excellent. And all the people were saying, oh, what a wonderful preacher. And again, Philip was a little concerned that this guy was going to be too full of himself. So under obedience, he made him give the exact same homily every time he preached. <laughs> and so after a few months, people would say, oh, this poor guy, this poor priest, he only has one homily. It's truly such a shame. He can't actually 
Uh, he's not a good preacher. <laughs> but, you know, we, you wouldn't think of that unless you saw someone act that way. And again, the way soldiers become brave is by watching their leaders who go out into battle and lead them. And then they see, ah, this is how a soldier acts under these circumstances. This is how a monk acts, right? Oftentimes we learn virtue as parents by thinking, what would my mother have done in this situation? What would my father have done? What didn't work? When my father got mad at me that one time, it didn't help. But when he told a joke, it lightened the mood and everything worked. So I'm going to tell a dad joke now, <laughs> right? So any questions about the virtues before we go our separate ways today?